This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. Richard Davidson. Richie, as he is known by friends and associates, is a research professor of psychology and psychiatry, director of the Weissman Laboratory for Brain Imaging and Behavior, and founder of the Center for Healthy Minds. He was named one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time Magazine in 2006. His research is broadly focused on the neural bases of emotion and emotional style and methods to promote human flourishing, including meditation and related contemplative practices. His studies have included persons of all ages, from birth through old age, and have also included individuals with disorders of emotion, such as mood and anxiety disorders and autism as well as expert meditation practitioners with tens of thousands of hours of experience. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Richie and I spoke about what we know and don't know at this point in time about how meditation practice changes the brain. We also talked about new neuroscientific research studies currently being conducted at the Center for Healthy Minds in the area of epigenetics, and also in the area of bringing contemplative practice on a wide scale into daily activities. And finally, Richie gave us his neurologically informed prescription for cultivating healthy well-being. Here's my informative and very illuminating conversation with Richie Davidson. Richie, I want to begin just by thanking you for taking time away from your research activities to be an educator, if you will, and to spend time sharing what you're finding as well. So thank you so much for your commitment to doing that. Happy to do it. Thank you for asking me. I wanted to begin by hearing your reflections on this. I've heard from different people. Meditation is now going mainstream. More and more people see the benefits of meditating because scientists like Richie Davidson have shown that meditation changes the brain in positive ways. Wow, we're in the midst of a revolution in our culture in relationship to meditation. How do you see that and your role in that? Uh, well, I, on the one hand, I'm heartened by it, and I think that uh, we are a culture that uh, pays attention to uh, scientific evidence, at least some parts of the culture, um, and, uh, uh, and to the extent that the scientific evidence is enabling groups of people who might otherwise 
not come into contact with meditation and uh, other contemplative practices, uh, I think that the science is serving a very beneficial function in um, in bringing awareness uh, to those segments of our culture uh, uh, about the potential benefit that may accrue uh, uh, as a consequence of these practices. Uh, so um, all that, I think, is, is really very, very positive and um, exciting. Uh, I think that there also is a bit of a downside. I, there is a lot of hype about the scientific research. Uh, the scientific evidence is still at a very, very early stage. Uh, uh, I think some of the claims that have been made in the media um, about uh, what has been established scientifically are way out of proportion to what actually uh, has been found in, in serious scientific research. And so I think there's going to be some um, correction needed, but you know, all that is, is understandable and not unexpected. And, um, and I think there'll be some healthy uh, pushback uh, and um, recalibration of expectations. Uh, but I think that all of this is basically a positive influence. And um, I think we'll see meditation and related contemplative practices enter into different segments of the culture uh, where it can really be of great benefit, I believe. Now, you said some of the facts about how effective meditation can be have potentially been exaggerated or distorted. So can you give it to us just in very plain down to earth, because here you are, you're on the ground, you're actually doing these research studies. What do we actually know at this point in time about how meditation affects the brain? Well, we can say certain things in broad strokes. So we can say with that, with a lot of confidence that uh, certain kinds of meditation will impact uh, a number of different circuits or networks in the brain. Uh, one is uh, networks that are important for attention. And uh, uh, we know that there are specific components of attention that can be strengthened or improved through meditation. Uh, uh, and the corresponding circuits in the brain that are associated with those components of attention uh, have been found to be altered. Now, whether they're altered structurally or functionally or both is still very much a matter of um, a, an open question, I would say, uh, and certainly has not been resolved uh, um, in scientific research. But the fact that there is some change in networks associated with attention, I think, at this point is pretty clearly demonstrated. The second related um, uh, fact, I would say, is that networks that are important for the regulation of emotion are also altered by meditation. Uh, so different kinds of meditation can have different effects, uh, but they um, there is a common impact on circuits important for the regulation of emotion. 
there are different aspects of the regulation of emotion that are affected. Um, uh, but uh, again, uh, and so a lot of the details are still to be worked out, the extent to which these are um, functional changes and or structural changes still needs to be um, uh, studied much more intensively. Uh, um, but there's good evidence to suggest that uh, these um, networks involved in the regulation of emotion are altered in ways that may promote well-being. Um, so those are two broad facts. Uh, we also um, know that uh, networks associated with the narrative that we construct about ourselves, uh, the self-relevant narratives in our mind, uh, we know something about uh, the brain networks that are associated with that from basic neuroscientific research. And we also know that those networks uh, are impacted by meditation. Um, uh, so those are three broad networks in the brain that are impacted. Uh, and let me quickly, though, add what we don't know. Um, we don't know uh, to what extent any form of meditation may really be effective in treating a specific illness. Um, there is certainly interest and a lot of excitement about the possibility that different forms of meditation uh, or mindfulness-based this or that can be potentially effective in treating specific kinds of disorders. The best evidence is uh, in the area of depression with mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. Uh, and I would say that there's really the only place where there really is decent scientific evidence that a, um, a meditation-based um, intervention uh, has um, met the bar in terms of high standards of scientific rigor and has established um, some impact. Um, uh, there are a lot of simple, basic questions that we don't know. So, for example, if a person were to engage in some kind of meditation practice for a certain period of time each day, let's just say 20 minutes, um, we don't know whether it's best for that person to do it in a single 20-minute um, period, in two 10-minute periods, in five four-minute periods, or maybe even in 10 two-minute periods that are sprinkled throughout the day. Uh, on that simple, very basic question, we have absolutely no idea. Um, and uh, it's very likely from everything that we do know that the answer to that question is likely to be different for different kinds of people. Uh, and so... Uh, uh, while there's, you know, a lot to be excited about by the available scientific facts, um, there's equal, there should be equal excitement about all the things we don't know, because uh, there's a huge opportunity for learning new things as we move forward in this area in the future. Okay, well, I want to talk more about what we do know, but just for a moment, what about what we don't know is most exciting and interesting to you right now? And what are you actually working on in terms of what we don't know that you want to find out about? 
Well, um, you know, we we have a, a large center here, uh, the Center for Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin, and we do lots of different things uh, that include both basic research as well as more applied or translational research. Uh, on the basic research side, there are some really exciting questions about um, epigenetic changes, changes in gene expression that uh, are just beginning to be studied. Uh, and there are some new techniques that are available to look at this in ways that were never possible before. Uh, and so this is going to be a whole new arena uh, that's going to open up all kinds of exciting possibilities. And so we're doing a bunch of basic research along these lines, and uh, we expect that there are going to be all kinds of new discoveries around this in the future. Uh, and the, the radical idea here is that we can use our minds, uh, mental training, to actually influence the, the expression of our genes. Um, and that's just the mind-blowing concept. Uh, but the fact that it can occur is, um, is by now pretty well established. Um, uh, how that occurs, the mechanisms by which it occurs, the extent to which it occurs, and the kind of impact that it might have, all those are still to be determined, but there's a lot of interesting questions that could be asked there. Now, can you um, tell so me what the new technique is that is allowing these epigenetic studies to show this new information? Yeah, so um, one of the principal new techniques that we can use is we could take a blood sample from a person and extract from the blood peripheral mononuclear cells, which are in the blood, and we can turn those cells in a dish into pluripotent stem cells. And once they're turned into stem cells, we can then turn them into any kind of cell in the body, including neurons. Um, uh, and we can turn them into very specific neurons that are found only in um, specific brain regions. So, for example, we can turn them into uh, intercalated GABAergic neurons in the amygdala uh, from a blood cell. Uh, and, uh, and then in a dish, we can actually grow these brain cells and study their properties and look at their gene expression. Um, and so... Uh, in effect, we are studying the properties of um, these uh, molecular mechanisms uh, in cells uh, that um, uh, are specific to particular parts of the brain. And the only way that could be that could have been done in the past is invasively in animals with a brain biopsy, actually um, cutting through the brain, which you obviously cannot do in human research, but this allows us to do this same kind of research completely non-invasively. Um, and it's, it's totally extraordinary that what, what can be done now. Very good. Now, you were going to say more before I asked you to explain that a little further in terms of what we don't know that you're currently focused on. Yeah, so the other thing that I was going to mention is the translational research. Um, and um, one of the important uh, issues which um, we're studying is this. Uh, you and many others who are around this area know from our experience that when we talk about this kind of work to certain groups of people, they'll often tell us, well, 
um, the idea of taking more time out of my day to do yet something else is not not only not going to be stress reducing, but it's going to be stress producing. Um, uh, it's just uh, unthinkable. Uh, and so, uh, and this is um, the kind of response that we get in many sectors now uh, from um, busy people in, uh, in particularly in corporate America as well as elsewhere in the world. Uh, uh, and so, one question which um, we've been interested in is okay if we meet people sort of where they are. Um, is there a way that we can engage them in this kind of training without them taking a single minute extra out of their day? Um, and how would this occur? Well, one way it would occur is actually a way in which um, behavioral scientists have begun to find that new habits can actually become more readily established, and it's through the simple mechanism of piggybacking. And so uh, we can have a person identify an activity of daily living. Um, it might be um, cleaning their house. It might be going shopping um, uh, for food uh, on a regular basis. It might be commuting. Uh, whatever the activity of daily living is, uh, what we can do is piggyback a specific practice uh, on that activity of daily living. And then it could be a guided practice where they're essentially listening to a mini podcast that um, they can uh, have uh, playing in their ears as they're going about uh, this activity of daily living. Um, so that's something that we're very interested in exploring, and we have the opportunity now through a major initiative that we're developing that we call the Healthy Minds Program, which is a comprehensive program to promote well-being that we're developing, and um, we will be disseminating this initially in workplace settings, and it will allow for people to go through this program in different ways. But one of the modes in which a person can go through this program is actually not requiring them to, um, uh, to uh, take any additional time out of their regular daily routine, but rather do it in this piggybacking way. And we can determine whether uh, the impact of these practices when they're done in this way is the same or different than if they're doing formal meditation. Uh, and again, we don't know the answer to that. It may be that um, doing this while you're um, going shopping in a store, um, uh, and actually there may be emphasizing um, practices that uh, focus on care and connection um, with those around you, uh, may actually potentially be more effective than doing that same practice when you're sitting alone. Um, and so uh, th we uh, are developing this program, which will enable us to actually collect data um, from massive numbers of people at scale, because we'll be collecting data on mobile devices uh, using objective measures that can be implemented on mobile devices. And so we can collect the data uh, in a um, uh, in a large scale way.
Okay, I just have to ask a couple more questions about this because it's pretty exciting what you're describing. So I'm imagining going shopping and I'm listening to some kind of guided practice that is somehow connecting me to my heart and to feeling my inner connection with other people. And now I'm part of the study and I'm directed to enter something or other into my iPhone that's somehow going to be an objective measurement. That's the part where I, I lost you. Yeah, so let's say you do that, um, Tammy, and uh, you've just uh, spent 15 minutes in a store shopping, and um, uh, you're asked to indicate when the shopping is over. Uh, and then at that point, um, you're asked if you can take, say, um, three to five minutes uh, and engage in some simple assessments that will be presented on your smartphone. Um, and uh, uh, you would then be given, um, for example, a measure of empathic accuracy uh, that is an objective measure that's neuroscientifically grounded, that is actually based on neuroscientific research, but can be implemented on your smartphone um, uh, and uh, uh, that takes three minutes. And you can actually get an objective measure of your empathic accuracy. Um, and not only would you be given feedback about that, you can think of this as like Fitbits for the mind, but also uh, um, this data would then be wirelessly transmitted to our center and part of our database. Um, and we expect to do this in millions of people um, within the next 18 months. Oh, my we really are at a frontier. Okay, but I have to ask another question. Is this a self-assessment that I'm doing in these few minutes? Is it some self-assessment? What makes it objective, quote-unquote? It's not a questionnaire. We're not asking you on a one-to-seven-point scale, tell me how empathically accurate you are, because I don't believe that would be very useful. Um, this is a an objective measure that is grounded in neuroscientific research. Um uh, and so it would take me a while to go okay. through yep. how, how the measure was constructed, but it's uh, it's a measure um, uh, that uh, um, basically presents very very short um, video segments that are uh, like ten second snippets uh, of a person describing an emotional episode, and you're asked to rate. Um, the intensity of that person's emotions by sliding your finger on the on the iPhone, uh, and um, basically the measure of empathic accuracy is how closely your ratings of intensity matches the person who actually is on your iPhone describing this emotional episode. How intense she or he rated them in real time uh, uh -huh. as they were describing it. Mm -hmm. And um, and we know a lot about that kind of measure, and it's been, and people who are more accurate on that task have greater activation in a specific brain network uh, that we know a lot about that's strengthened by compassion practices. Mm -hmm. Well, it's very exciting, and especially when you talk about the number of people who potentially will be participating, and in the very near future. I notice I feel very excited and grateful. So thank you, Richie. I'm happy that you guys have put that much work 
into place to make something like this launch so soon? Well, thank you. It's uh, it's a it's a big initiative in our center, and we're really excited about it. And, uh, in June, um, we're having a very very small meeting with uh, uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama when he's here in the United States, and he'll be meeting with uh, CEOs of a number of very very large global corporations um, with us who are interested in adopting this Healthy Minds platform uh, in their workplace. Uh, and His Holiness has been involved with us as a uh, an in, the inspirer-in-chief and also as a consultant. He has reviewed the curriculum with us in detail that's part of this. Uh, and so he'll be meeting with these CEOs and talking to them about the potential impact of something like this. Mm-hmm. And for people who aren't aware, can you share a little bit about your connection with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and how really that relationship has been at the very root of the work that you've been doing in this field of contemplative neuroscience? Certainly. Um, I first met His Holiness in 1992. And um, uh, and in that meeting, uh, that was a very pivotal meeting for me, both personally and professionally. And uh, His Holiness challenged me because at that time we really weren't doing much of this kind of work, although I was very much a closet meditator. Um, But His Holiness uh, encouraged us to use the tools of modern neuroscience uh, to focus on positive human qualities like kindness and compassion. Uh, And he basically said that you've been using these tools to study adversity and stress and anxiety, why can't you use these same tools to study kindness and compassion? And uh, it was very much a wake-up call for us, and that um, began this turning toward uh, uh, toward this work uh, and eventually led to the founding of the Center for Healthy Minds. Uh, and these days, I, um, for reasons that I don't completely understand, um, have the opportunity to uh, meet with His Holiness three or four times a year. Uh, I was just with him in India last month, um, and uh, uh, and it's you know it's it's just been an extraordinary relationship, and His Holiness has been so uh, committed to fostering uh, this um, interaction between modern science and the contemplative traditions particularly Buddhism, uh, and uh, uh, very committed to um, helping in whatever ways he can. And he sees this as an important path uh, for the uh, more wide-scale dissemination of uh, strategies to train the mind to cultivate these positive human qualities. And he's always reminding us that There are 7 billion people on the planet uh, and that we need to find ways to reach them. And he strongly believes that the scientific approach is going to be very important for a large swath of humanity.
You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. I know that some of your early studies involved doing research on the brain of people who were termed Olympic meditators, people who had meditated for thousands of hours. Have you ever studied the brain of His Holiness the Dalai Lama? Has he ever gone into the machine? Uh, He has not, no. So, uh, yeah, I mean, um, you know, when we first began this work, uh, everyone around me said, ask His Holiness to participate. Sure. Um, uh, and I did. And, uh, you know, I, I was very much expecting the answer that I received, which was um, thank you, but no thank you. And, you know, when when he's in the United States, it's such a media circus. And um, uh, I think that he was concerned about what the media would be reporting about it. And I, frankly, was concerned, too. Uh, and so it's it's almost impossible to to do this um, completely off the radar, uh, and so um, the decision was made not to. Uh huh. Now you know it's interesting in listening to you describe what we do know about the science of meditation. You talk about certain networks that we know are important to things like attention or the regulation of emotion. You're not saying this particular singular part of the brain or, you know, so I thought that was interesting that you kept using this word networks. And I wonder if you can say something about that. Yeah, that's um, very, uh, um, uh, it's very important that you picked up on that. And uh, it's a very important um idea. Uh, These days, everything we know about the brain suggests that there's no single area that is implementing uh, any complex function. So there's no area in the brain that is the compassion area or no area in the brain that is uh, the uh, attentional focus area um, or no area in the brain that's the self area. Uh, It's... um, from the more and more what we learn about the brain, and in part it's a consequence of having methods that enable us to see these things, it's very clear that when we engage a person in a complex mental process, that lots of things are going on in the brain at once, and um, and that it is way too simplistic to think about a specific region doing this or that. And so that's the reason we prefer to use the term networks or circuits. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, when, when a long-term meditation practitioner engages in compassion meditation practice, for example, or uh, more of an awareness meditation practice, lots of things in the brain are changing, not just one specific area. And so this is just a uh, a choice of language to be more faithful to the reality of the complexity. 
Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned in terms of what we do know that there are certain kinds of meditation that are important to attention. And I thought, well, let's dig into that a little bit because there's all different kinds of attention. You could have very focused attention, and sometimes that's what's wanted. Sometimes it's more of a sort of open, panoramic attention. And there's also all different kinds of meditation. You know, in preparing for this conversation, Richie, I read that you talk about meditation analogously is like referring to something like sports. There are all different kinds of sports, you know, tennis, football, whatever. And sports is a big umbrella category, just like meditation is a big umbrella category. And that we really have to get more nuanced if we're going to talk about a certain type of meditation having a certain neuroscientific impact. So help unpack a little bit this idea of what types, what specific types of meditation do we know impact what kinds of attention? Yeah, well, it's a great question, and um, uh, super important. So, I mean, just to, uh, I'll answer your question specifically in a minute, but just to give a very concrete example, uh, in some of our studies, and this is all published research, we have looked at very long-term meditation practitioners, people who we would consider among the um, the Olympic athletes, if you will, of meditation practice in the world. Uh, and in response to the identical stimuli um, in two different kinds of meditation practice, in, um, in a specific network in the brain, we find totally opposite effects. So in one meditation practice, we find a, an attenuation of activity in this network. In another meditation practice, we find an accentuation of activity. Um, in response to the identical stimuli, so in, in the same person. So this is just a very concrete example that to say that meditation does X to the brain as a kind of blanket general statement is um, is so imprecise um, uh, as to border on you know just really inappropriate, um, given the kind of findings that are are out there now in the scientific literature. Um, So uh, uh, to address your question more specifically, um, in the domain of attention, uh, as you're suggesting, Tammy, there are certain kinds of meditation practices that focus attention or that invite the practitioner to focus her or his attention. Other practices that invite the practitioner to uh, have a more open panoramic uh, kind of attention, and attention is explicitly not focused on any one thing. And um, there are data to suggest that, um, again, within the same practitioner, those two different kinds of meditation have different effects, different immediate effects, at least, on the brain. Um, uh uh, and um, and so uh, this simply underscores the um, the importance of heterogeneity among different forms of of meditation practice. Now, you know there is something important 
sort of at a, at a higher level to say about this. Most people who are long-term meditation practitioners, as we know, practice multiple forms of meditation. They typically don't just practice one. Um, and so by engaging in multiple forms of practice, they are exercising the circuits, if you will, from a neuroscientific perspective in different ways. And one of the things that they might be doing um, when you put all that together is um, uh, is exercising a certain kind of flexibility uh, in their um, in, the, in the deployment of their brain networks. Uh, and you might think of it as uh, um, you know if you go to a physical trainer who is very attentive to different parts of your body, the trainer might have you do lots of different kinds of exercises to strengthen um, different parts of your body. It's not just one exercise, but many different kinds of exercise. And what may be optimal is uh, sort of um, a more global program where you're exercising multiple parts of the body. Um, and in the same way, uh, um, it may be optimal that different parts of the mind are exercised, which may strengthen different circuits in the brain uh, that may ultimately result in a certain kind of flexibility uh, that uh, allows an individual to bring, um, if you will, what may be optimal to a particular situation, the, the resources required, if you will, for a particular situation and flexibly adjust as the environment changes. Um, but that's hypothetical at this point. We don't know that for a fact, but that is a conjecture based upon the tidbits that we are learning. Now, Richie, I'm curious, in performing all of these different research investigations and testing different types of meditation and different types of practices, different kinds, compassion practices, gratitude practices, did it at any point occur to you, you know, gosh, I need to integrate XYZ practice into my own life and do more of it based on these results. This is so compelling. And, you know, I've been doing this thing, whatever it might be, but I, I really need to include this additional practice. I really have to do it. Look at the results. <laughs> it's interesting that you asked that. I, you know, it's, um, it is really interesting. I, uh, um, uh, I certainly am inspired by some of the findings in the scientific literature. And there are um, many times during a week when I will, um, as I sit down to practice each day, the, you know, I spend maybe a moment or two reflecting on how, based on everything I know, um, I'm really changing my brain. Uh, and that's really cool, and um, it's probably healthy in some, you know, with a capital H, uh, um, in some basic ways. But, you know, more than that, I don't really spend a lot of time thinking about it in terms of my own personal practice. I mean, I have a teacher, and I feel like um, I've got really all of the resources that I need for myself in terms of that. And, um, uh, and I'm sort of following a particular path that seems right for me. 
I mean, one of the things that, that the science has convinced me of really strongly is that, I mean, it's sort of something that I knew before, but the science really makes it so clear is that one size does not fit all. Uh, and that what's good for one person is not necessarily going to be good for the next person. And it's that has really helped me um, respect and honor individual variation and, um, and, 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 and invite me um, both personally as well as professionally in, in the scientific work we do to think about how can we be most helpful to this person as she or he is presenting her himself right now, given the particular unique cognitive, emotional, contextual, cultural context in which this being is presented. Um, and that what's good for me is not necessarily going to be good for this person. Uh, and I think that that's just really important. How did the science show you that? The science shows us that by, uh, if you take a look at any randomized controlled trial of a meditation-based intervention and look carefully at it, at the kind of dirty laundry, which often is hard to find, but as a scientist, I know where to find it, um, you see that some people are really benefited a lot, and there are other people who show very little benefit and there are still other people who are likely actually made a little bit worse. Um, uh, uh, and, um, and that's really important. Uh, and I don't think we should hide that, that laundry under the rug, which we tend to do. Um, uh, I think that it's, it, that it's very informative. It's telling us something important, and I think we need to listen. Well, I think it also keeps any one of us out of a fundamentalist attitude about whatever practices we happen to be turned on and excited about and generates an incredible amount of tolerance and acceptance of difference. So it's a very powerful idea. I think that's true, too. And I, I think that is really important. Yes. Okay, so here you are investigating what makes a healthy mind? And I'm curious, have you come up with any kind of working framework, if you will, that says, this is what a healthy mind is like? <laughs> um, it's, uh, that's a great question. And, um, you know, the, the, uh, our center has gone through some evolution in its first incarnation we called it the Center for Investigating Healthy Minds. Uh, we dropped the investigating, not because we've stopped investigating, but investigating is not the only thing we do. We're also trying to promote healthy minds. Um, so, uh, um, but, you know, I, I certainly have some conjectures about uh, some of the key elements of a healthy mind. Um, uh, and, you know, it's built around four domains. Um, one is awareness um, and being able to uh, uh, recognize a certain basic qualities of awareness and deploy awareness in a volitional way. Um, the second has to do with care and connection uh, and um, 
uh, and uh, interpersonal relationships. Uh, the third has to do with uh, a understanding of the self uh, and an inquiry into the self and um, uh, uh, insight into the narrative that we carry around, that each of us carries around, and, and what a healthy sense of self is and what an unhealthy sense of self is. And the fourth is um, connecting to a sense of meaning and purpose. Um, uh, and uh, these are all elements of a healthy mind. I, I don't pretend to suggest that this is an exhaustive list. Um, and there are many different constituents within each of these. But these are four domains uh, that are really important uh, where there is good scientific research uh, and um, where there are also, we know, practices that can help cultivate um, uh, these qualities. Uh, and uh, this is something that will be part of our ongoing stream of investigations as we go on. Okay, well, let's talk more about the third domain that you talked about, which is understanding the self and having a healthy sense of self, because you did mention in the things that we do have some results from neuroscience about and the effects of meditation that there is a relationship between meditators and the narrative we have about the self and how that changes with meditation. So tell me a little bit about that. I'd love to know, first of all, what you think in your own, this view, a healthy sense of self might be, and what does the neuroscience tell us about meditation and how this impacts our sense of self? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I can spend a long time on this, and there's a huge amount that is happening around this topic uh, these days. But let me just summarize a few things. Um, uh, if you uh, put a person in an MRI scanner uh, and tell them to simply rest for a few minutes and don't give them any other instruction and measure their brain, uh, there are certain networks in the brain that uh, are very active in most people the vast majority of people. Uh, and it turns out that these networks that are active in the brain when we don't give a person an explicit instruction uh, happen to be networks that seem to have something to do with this narrative about the self that we carry around. Uh, to put in another way, when we are, um, when we're put, when we're, we're, I mean, when you're in the bore of an MRI scanner, you can't really do very much other than sort of lay there and when you are left to your own devices, most people who don't have uh, a meditation practice uh, are, begin to have self-related um, thoughts. Uh, and um, most of our thinking in this context is focused on the self. Um, and, uh, uh, and so we've constructed this narrative over the course of our development about ourselves and um, the narrative uh, often can ensnare us and get us into trouble when there is an excessive reification of the self, um, uh, when there's over, um, when we overly identify with the self, when the thoughts that we have uh, are 
um, taken to be who we are as opposed to just thoughts, if you will. Uh, and so part of developing a healthy sense of self is um, gaining insight into the construction of this narrative and the relation between the narrative um, and um, uh, and uh, who we uh, actually are, uh, and to be able to um, see our thoughts uh, as um, as thoughts, uh, and and um, uh, and to uh, begin to loosen the identification that we have with the self. And as we do this through meditation practice, there is a corresponding change in the brain where the connectivity between the networks that are um, involved with this this self-narrative and other networks in the brain begin to um, decrease. So uh, 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 one way to think about this is that these self-narratives hijack lots of other resources in the brain. Um, and with meditation practice, particularly longer-term meditation practice, we see this influence diminishing. Um, uh, and so it's not that the thoughts go away. Uh, the thoughts are still there, but they don't hijack us in the same way because these connections are being broken um, uh, or at least diminished. Uh, and so that is really part of the development of a healthier sense of self and how it may be um, echoed in the kinds of measurements that we can take of the brain. Okay, and then I need to ask you about this domain of meaning and purpose in terms of having a healthy mind, and how possibly could neuroscience tell us anything that would help us develop this sort of deep inner sense of why we're here? Well, um, here's where neuroscience has played an important role. Neuroscience has helped us uh, to um, distinguish between people who do have uh, a clear uh, sense of meaning and purpose in their life and those who don't. So one thing that we can say at a very simple and basic level uh, is that there's a big difference in the functioning of the brain in specific circuits between people who, who report a strong sense of meaning and purpose in life and those who do not. And um, the, the ways in which the brains of people who have a strong sense of meaning and purpose in life and those who don't um, are interesting and informative and they may begin to help us understand um, what some of the elements are or at least the consequences are neuroscientifically of having this sense of meaning and purpose in life. So just to give a concrete example, um, uh, one of the things that seems to happen when a strong sense of meaning and purpose develops is um, that there is a quality of resilience that occurs. And here we mean resilience in a very specific way, and that is the rapidity with which you recover from adversity. Um, people who have a very strong sense of meaning and purpose in life recover much more quickly from adversity. 
And in part, it's because they can see um, the adversity really as part of a larger whole, if you will. Um, and uh, uh, and it doesn't um, it doesn't uh, sort of disrupt their sense of meaning and purpose. Um, uh, and uh, uh, and uh, and alternatively or complementary, their sense of meaning and purpose enables them to recover quickly from adversity. And uh, it the brain is. Um, there are very specific circuits in the brain that we and others have studied that shows quite dramatic differences um, as a consequence of um, this sense of meaning and purpose. So I would say that we're, you know, we're, we're beginning to sort of nip at this around the edges. I certainly wouldn't want a listener to think that we fully understand how this might work in the brain but we're beginning to understand some of at least the correlates in the brain of um, uh, of meaning and purpose. Okay, just to conclude here, Richie, I'm imagining someone who's listening, who's heard you say, each one of us is very individual. So the practice that works for some other person may or may not work for us, but it's clear that meditation as a category of practices clearly have shown certain benefits for certain people. What I'm wondering is if you could say anything else in a definitive way about what you feel very confident in will actually create positive changes in someone's life besides the practice of meditation. Like if you do, if I could, if I could only recommend a handful of things that people intentionally cultivate in their life, for greater well-being, here's what I recommend. Uh, and things that are not that are not contemplative practices. I'm going to leave it. You're... I'm going to leave it open to you. But we've talked a lot about any type of meditation. But you could be more specific if you want. Uh, yeah, here's sort of like Richie's neuroscientifically informed. Granted, it's limited prescription for well-being. Train in this. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'll go out on a limb uh, and say the following. One of the things that's really uh, that we haven't talked about, Tammy, that's a super exciting um, development in modern um, scientific research uh, uh, in sort of the behavioral neurosciences is what I call innate basic goodness. Innate basic goodness. And... Um, and what I mean by that is there's more and more really good hard-nosed evidence to suggest that each of us comes into the world with an innate propensity to prefer the good, to prefer warm-hearted, altruistic, cooperative interactions compared to those that are selfish, greedy, and aggressive. Um, and the data are really strong. Uh, that suggests that we we come into life early early in development with this very strong propensity, um, and so I would go so far as to say that innate basic goodness is really a fundamental property of the human mind that each of us share, and as a consequence, practices which nurture this capacity uh, are practices that I think are 
really important for everyone and are accessible to everyone. And they could be really simple practices, practices um, simply reflecting on the the simple idea that we all share the same wish to be happy, to be free of suffering, that we all have this basic innate goodness. We may forget that we have it. We may be distracted from it. We may have been raised in circumstances which minimize the likelihood that we connect to this, but we all have it. And it's very much like language. We all come into the world with a biological propensity for language. But in order for this propensity to be expressed, in the case of language, we need to be raised in a normal linguistic community. And there are cases of feral children who've been raised in the wild that don't develop normal language. And I think the same is true for qualities like kindness and compassion and appreciation. And there are simple things that we can do in our lives to remind us of this basic innate goodness. And if we do those and sprinkle them throughout the day, I'm absolutely convinced from the scientific evidence that we can improve our individual well-being, we can improve the well-being of groups, uh, and we can improve the well-being of organizations and of the world. Um, and uh, and it really is building upon this innate basic goodness uh, and cultivating it that makes it so accessible. And from the scientific research, we know that a, that a practice like this that's as short as eight minutes can produce measurable changes uh, on objective indices that um, we're not suggesting necessarily will endure but if the, the practices are done over time, we think that um, real uh, change happens. Well, I have to say, ending on that note makes me incredibly happy. Cultivating our innate goodness, our shared humanity. You know, Richie, I just want to say, you know, I uh, know you as a researcher and an educator. But in this conversation, what I really feel is your bodhisattvic activity, if you will, and what a pioneering social activist you are, and how your work really is creating such positive waves of social change. So I feel incredibly grateful to you and uh, am bowing on the inside to you for your work. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for your wonderful questions, Tammy, and uh, I appreciate all that you do in helping to disseminate uh, and promote uh, this kind of activity in so many different sectors. So uh, a deep bow of gratitude to you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I've been speaking with Richie Davidson. He's the author of the book, The Emotional Life of Your Brain. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey.